0: to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich.
1: This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. When you think of coins related to the Civil War most of us would think of the Lincoln penny but that of course dates to 1909 the centennial of Lincoln's birth. What about the coins that a soldier or civilian might carry around during the Civil War? There were such coins but not like the ones we think of today not made by the government. Who did make them? What were they used for? What do we know about them? Can you find them today? We'll ask these questions and more of our guest, Scott Hopkins, a member of the Board of Governors of the Civil War Token Society, today on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, Blackberry App World, or Android Market.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you. On a rainy April evening in 2017, from the third floor of the Brewster Building, located on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, home of the NCAA Basketball Men's Championship, but not speaking for North Carolina or ECU. ECU is not the champions, UNC, by the way. Uh, not speaking for anyone, just myself, as my guest will certainly do tonight speaking to you in my usual calm and quiet tones which is different from 30 minutes ago when uh, some people were outside the door of my office actually one floor up and right outside the door removing the water fountain from the wall with a jackhammer Uh, it was deafening and they went up to see what was going on they said well we can't do this during the during the school day, they tried it, and all the professors came out of their offices and classrooms to say, you can't do that right now. So they thought they would do it after hours, and uh, I thought I was going to have to move somewhere. But they promised they would be done by 7 p.m., and sure enough, they are. So we're back, peace and quiet reigns on the halls of the Brewster Building, leaving us free to talk about the things we talk about on Civil War Talk Radio, uh, this week, for example, everyone's talking about the officiating, the rules, decisions made by officials this past weekend. Uh, why the officials of the uh, Pitt Greenville Soccer Association decided to cancel play last Sunday just because it had rained two days earlier and it was beautiful on Sunday. Who knows? Everyone was up in arms about that. Um, there was also some, some discontent with the officiating of Sunday night's basketball game in which the UNC, Tar Heels won the national title, so uh, I figure uh, since my daughter goes to UNC Chapel Hill, I am paying enough tuition dollars to earn the right to enjoy that championship. And I wore my UNC T-shirt the next day, not on campus, just just when I went out grocery shopping. Speaking of sports. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I made a gratuitous reference to East Carolina's baseball victory over Duke University, which I now regret in part because ECU's baseball season has fallen apart. But also, I realize I cannot afford to take part in the UNC-Duke rivalry, uh, because if I add that to my Michigan rivalry as my alma mater with Ohio State in football and Michigan State in everything and Notre Dame just for being Notre Dame, I will end up alienating two-thirds of the Civil War talk radio audience, and I don't want to do that. So I'll try to keep those things to myself as much as possible. Uh, No more bad words about Duke. I almost went to Duke, actually, for graduate school. I applied there, and they made a generous offer, which I considered accepting. Uh, But then I also was accepted, uh, and you'll be surprised to learn this, at Harvard University and decided to go there instead. So, back to Civil War talk. It is uh, a gloomy, cold, rainy April evening right now in Greenville, but in a month or so it will be beautiful throughout the Southeast, and it will be time for This Hallowed Ground, the annual tour of Civil War sites sponsored by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Contact them, sign up for the trip, May 20th to 28th, I'm looking forward to it, as I do every year. Uh, I know some listeners are already signed up. hope more of you can come and join us. It's always a really enlightening and uh, a, a moving experience, uh, not just moving on the bus from place to place, but uh, it's a, a powerful experience to go to the, the places that we talk about and see these battlefields firsthand. If you can't go firsthand, of course, you can always read about the things we talk about here on the show, impedimentsofwar.org is the website that tells you who's going to be on the show, and it now has a bookstore link, a big panel that says Impediments of War Bookstore. Go click on that, and it takes you a page to a page showing all the books we've talked about in this, the 13th season of Civil War Talk Radio, links to buy those books. Other links are being added to books from the previous seasons by Mark Gaffney, the technological wizard who controls impediments of war and as he gradually gets them uh, added you'll be able to buy those books as well and if you buy them that way uh, then uh, he and i get a a penny or two to help pay for the website and other things Uh, no other financial interest on our part just making it easier for you to support the authors here on the show and you can also support the show directly with the PayPal donation button, which is still there, still works fine. If you consider a recurring donation of a dollar or two every month, then you will sleep better, you'll feel the the contentment of a placated conscience, and uh, they'll have money to put toward books purchased for the show, or noise-canceling headphones if they're drilling outside the door or whatever else it is I want to buy. It's not a a tax-deductible gift. Please don't uh, do that or you'll get in trouble with the law. Well, coming up on the show in weeks ahead, more excellent uh, books to talk about and topics to discuss. Next week, Dennis Fry, the legendary National Park Service ranger at Harper's Ferry will be with us to talk about his work there and his book, September Suspense, Lincoln's Union in Peril, September 1862. On the 19th of April, the next week after that, it's Judith Giesberg. She returns to the show. Her new book is called Sex and the Civil War, Soldiers, Pornography, and the Making of American Morality. We will learn something good for us that night, I do not doubt. I got a Listener request for the book we're going to talk about the following week. So I was able, happily, able to say ahead of you. There we're going to we're going to talk to Jonathan White, and uh, he's also a returning guest to the show. His new book, Midnight in America: Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War. We are reaching new topics. Whenever people say, "Isn't the war played out? Haven't haven't you read about every battle there is?" Well. No, of course, there are many more battles than any of us could read about, uh, or more skirmishes at least, but there are also new angles all the time, and and, uh, in April we'll be talking about a couple new ones. A more traditional topic on May 3rd will be the Battle of Gettysburg. Gary Cross is a licensed battlefield guide, and then on May 10th, Drew Gruber, who's the Executive Director for Civil War Trails, will be with us. That'll be timely, as we'll be just two weeks out from the... Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, and we'll find out who puts those trail markers up and, and what's, what's the deal with that. So it should be an interesting discussion. Tonight we talk about a topic I knew nothing about until I heard about it from our guest. Uh, he is Scott Hopkins. He is on the Board of Governors for the Civil War Token Society, and I have uh, numerous questions for him. Scott, are you there? can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So normally I ask first about a guest's background, but tonight's topic is so different from anything that I've talked about before with anyone that I want to start with the question, what, what is a Civil War token?
3: Well, I have to preface to say that uh, a lot of my colleagues warned me that if I'm talking to an audience that's not familiar with this topic... It's going to take a lot longer, and I'm going to have to speak in a more broad sense, so I'll try my best to do that. Um, We call Civil War tokens tokens instead of coins because they were privately issued. Uh, That's not always the case, but it's usually the case, and they act as substitute currency in cases uh, where regular federal issues don't exist or become scarce due to, in this case, hoarding. And so um, prior to the American Civil War, we see that a lot of the gold and silver coin in the United States was hoarded. Starting in about 1859, we see small cents starting to appear that are taking the place of the one cent coin, which was just changed from a large cent into a small cent that we notice today, much similar to the Lincoln cent design.
1: So, so, these are so, so now we've got a broad idea. We're talking about about coins, essentially, but not coins made by the government. with With that, just so our listeners have a little sense of background, let me get back to the first question I ask about about your background. Um, how did you first become interested either in the Civil War or in 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 tokens and civil war coins?
3: Sure. So, uh, like many of the um, guests on the show, I think it started at uh, childhood. My grandmother had a really great book, a picture book encyclopedia of the American Civil War. And when we went to go visit her, it was all technology off, you know, none of that stuff. We had to be either outside or educating ourselves. So I grabbed that book off the bookshelf and I was hooked. Um, I couldn't put it down. I was really drawn to the artifacts the, the remnants, and I wanted to imagine what it was like to be there. And so I learned at an early age, you couldn't just buy an old Civil War uniform, um, or at least as a kid. Uh, you couldn't buy the old guns. But some of the small trinkets were rather affordable at the time. And um, I think within a couple of years of showing interest, she started gifting me old coins as birthday and Christmas gifts. And that really drew my interest. I I was really excited to hold a piece of history like that. That was, uh, it was incredible for me. And and of course they were nothing uh, extraordinary at the time, but they were very important to me. And so I, I used that and I started educating myself and getting the proper books to learning about coins and really made it pretty much my career now. Is
1: this a day job for you then?
3: Yes, it is. Uh, I'm, Pretty well self-employed on the um, on the front of coins and history. I kind of melded it all together. I went to university to get a degree in history. and uh, of course, I found the job market kind of lacking if I didn't go into academia. So I started vending for myself and got a little creative. And so I work as a researcher for private clients, uh, for a couple of publishers, I do some ghostwriting, uh, columnist for a magazine. And hopefully have a few books close to completion by the end of this year.
1: Oh, that that is a very interesting story. The idea of the public history as as private practice—something I, I tell my students about—as a possibility that you can you can make a living doing historical things uh, as as a freelancer. It's it's a challenge, I, I guess you're you're finding, but it's it's doable
3: absolutely it takes a lot of self discipline and it takes some period of time of nervousness and uh, a lack of certainty
1: and that that's that, that's the one thing my students usually raise is they they most of them don't have an appetite for that uh, but some do some are ready to give give it a try mm-hmm. so these coins the the thing that you, that really struck me you said is the the sense you get from holding uh, in your hand, a piece of history, the, the associative value of artifacts that, that can't be replicated on a computer screen or a, a movie theater screen or pages of a book even, uh, the, the, this, the, you're, you're saying that this is what, what really hooked you initially?
3: Absolutely, yes. Um, in, in many cases, it, it really is just about holding them or looking at them in person. Uh, I, I found and many collectors can attest that the hunt for the coin or the ability to look and hold the coin is actually far more valuable than actually owning it itself. There's, there's just something about that, that desire to find that particular piece that you're looking for or something with a fascinating story. And so that's why we have so many organizations across the world really uh, talking about coins and the interesting stories that they tell.
1: So the the is it something that, I guess broad question. How many of these are out there? Uh, is it something that a listener to this show could say? Oh, I think I'll I'll go and do this. Uh, do they need to start with ten thousand dollars to get in the game?
3: Actually, that's one of the appeals that drew me to Civil War tokens in particular over many other coins. I do collect a number of other coins, but as a youngster, I found that if I wanted to build a meaningful collection of federally issued coins, uh, it was going to be quite the economic endeavor. I mean, it was pretty serious business. When you talk about some of the most rare uh, federally issued coins, like a mercury dime dated 1916 with a D mint mark. Something like that has just under a million mintage, yet it sells for a thousand dollars in its lowest grades. In grade, meaning the preservation of its quality, whereas someone can buy a Civil War token, which may have in existence only twenty or thirty, for twenty or thirty dollars.
1: Hmm. So so this is something uh, one could actually think about. I uh, and my wife will attest to this, need another hobby, like another hole in the head. Uh, And yet it's intriguing to think about the idea of of actually owning a piece of Civil War history in this fashion. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back and talk more about Civil War tokens their provenance, their origin, their history, and and collecting them today with our guest, Scott Hopkins. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: no registration is required listen to your favorite voice america hosts and discover new ones download the voice america mobile app for iphone android or blackberry powered by aircast visit the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market
4: the latest business information is made simple with the voice america business network
0: that's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome
1: back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Scott Hopkins on the topic of Civil War tokens, the private issue coins that were used throughout the war by soldiers and civilians. Scott is a collector and researcher on the topic, a uh, member of the board of the Civil War Token Society. The Scott, as I was thinking about this, um, so it makes sense. You point out early in the war, federally issued coins go out of circulation. People hoard them for the value of, of what they're made of, and so the void is filled by good capitalists who say there's a market and a demand. I'll, I'll create the supply. I'll, I'll make the coins. And then I thought, well, why don't I do that? I I could use more quarters for the parking meter. I'll just make my own and start using them. Of course, I would get a, a substantial jail term if I tried that. Uh, how did they get away with making coins?
3: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and it wasn't long before the government caught on to this, and it was ended uh, fairly quickly. This, w- Civil War tokens were issued, as I said, Just at the beginning of the war as well as throughout and towards the end in 1865 but the majority of them were issued in 1863 and that's due in part to a few earlier attempts to try to get rid of this problem of a lack of small change and so the first uh, attempts were fractional currencies and um, almost homemade iou notes from merchants and because these had no intrinsic value, they were simply paper or cardboard, um, they were heavily discounted and rarely used. And so the next attempt was postage stamps. And these were a great idea because everyone was using them and they had immediate value to anyone in America at the time. But what was quickly learned was once you traded them a couple of times in commerce, the uh, sticky residue you know, came off, they bent, they smashed. They lost their color. So that didn't last very long either. Um, A couple of individuals came in and tried to fix that problem. Uh, John Goh patented a design that allowed the postage stamps to be encased in brass with a mica window so that they could be exchanged very much like coins. Um, But the federal government ended up stepping in and saying, telling postmasters that we can't have this happen. You cannot sell stamps for such purposes. And so they, they never had a solution for that. And so it wasn't until 1864 that legislation was passed to provi- uh, forbid private businesses from issuing their own currencies.
1: It, that's It's worth noting just in terms of context that, of course, there was no federal currency at this time until the Legal Tender Act uh, during that's the right. war. But be- before the war, people that didn't use what well, we think of today as dollar bills, there were no greenbacks. They could have notes issued by state banks or even by private banks and use those literally IOUs to circulate back and forth. But you had to know who had issued them to know if they'd be That's good correct. to redeem them. So you couldn't trade maybe with someone in the next town, but certainly not two states over because they wouldn't know who would issued that. So, so right. it's I'm a working, different society. I'm working on a
3: – oh, Sorry.
1: Yeah, I'd say it's a different society than we're used to today, where there's no standard form of money as there there is uh, as there is today. That's correct. So, so the coins make a, a logical solution to that.
3: Yes, yes, and just to add to your point, there, I'm doing a research piece right now on uh, Michigan wildcat banks, and these were, you know, really smart capitalists taking advantage of the free banking acts uh, through the state that allowed them to print money in one state and then ship it through an agent all the way up into the boondocks, or in this case, where only the Wildcats would go, where it could never be redeemed, hoping to pass it off. So it did have a lot to do with trust and faith in who issued the coin or currency.
1: So did did that apply to these coins as well, these tokens? I mean, if a soldier gets a token sent from a, a dry goods dealer up in Michigan, but now they're on campaign in Virginia. Could, would the local sutler take that coin?
3: That's a good point. So when we're looking at Civil War tokens, we tend to divide them into three distinct categories. First, mm-hmm. we have patriotic tokens. These are the ones that have just simple patriotic themes on the obverse and the reverse. Uh, they make no mention of a particular merchant. The second one are store cards. These ones have usually an address and a name. And on the other side, the reverse, they say what kind of business the person does, whether it's dry goods or they're a dentist or a bar keep. And then the third type are sutler tokens. And so those ones were actually made specifically by the sutlers for use with the soldiers as the, they followed the regiments. Um, they're quite different than the. The previous two, and sometimes not even collected with Civil War tokens, are considered Civil War tokens uh, because of their use. Whereas the the first two circulated freely, the sutler tokens were given as change or when the soldiers would ask to have their um, their pay their payroll taken ahead of time so that they could get the the goods that they desperately wanted from the sutler. It would be deducted from their credit that money would be sent directly to the sutler, and then he would issue coins or paper money or cardboard. And unfortunately, what he issued was never of any intrinsic value. So the coins in question, these tokens, were flat as can be, almost like paper, very fragile. They were made of very little precious metal in the form of copper and very easy to break or lose or damage. And of course, if that happened, they wouldn't redeem them similar to a gift card today once you buy the gift card the business has already made their money and they account for so many of them being lost it was the same way with subtler tokens
1: so the, are those more collectible are they harder to find then
3: they're extremely hard to find yes um, in the case of Civil War tokens in general including the Patriotics and store cards uh, we estimate that about 50 million were produced during the Civil War with about 1 million existent today um, Suttler tokens are very hard to pin down as far as their rarity. Um, most issues don't have any more than 10 or 20 known to exist. Some maybe close to a hundred uh, depending on which regiment it was and what action they were involved in. Um, but generally speaking, when they're found, they're found dug from a metal detectorist or an archeologist. So they're usually bent. They usually have a hole for suspension on a necklace or a chain and, um, very rarely do we see them in great shape. Hmm. But
1: they they really do tell a direct story of the soldiers and their how they live day to day.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: What what about the uh, the others, the the patriotic ones? Now if they don't have a store listed on them, then, then what kind of thing what kind of symbols do they have on them?
3: So I'm actually holding a few right now in my hands just to remind myself of some of my favorites. Um, typically, we call them patriotics because they featured a number of patriotic themes, though that was not always the case. Um, some were known as copperhead pieces because they advocated uh, almost like a Quaker, uh, Quaker mentality of no war and peace. Um, but most of them said things like our Navy, our Army, um, they said things like, united we stand, divided we fall. Very simple designs like that with shields, with wreaths, with uh, the famous monitor on one side, um, Abraham Lincoln gracing one side. The very common themes usually, uh, quite a few of them actually tried to imitate the Indian head scent that was released at that time for so that they could blend in with the regular coinage in the case of the government stepping in and saying you know these are fake maybe they thought they could uh, actually fake them so- but generally speaking they were they were exchanged confidently with, between people because there was such a desperation for this small change and these things were actually made with quality in mind with the same uh, size the same weight nearly as federally issued pieces so it wasn't uh, it wasn't a big deal in many respects. Uh, some locales didn't appreciate them, but for many it was a, a desperate need, and they were very willing to take it.
1: And what were they mostly made of?
3: Uh, most issues were made of a, a mostly ninety percent copper. Um, we see quite a few bronze, uh, some iron and then uh, even at the time of the american civil war um, actually all the way to ancient times there have been coin collectors and so many of these pieces were actually struck for collectors in mind too and so we see pieces in tin and silver and some in different alloys um, aluminum just all kinds of a mix of stuff but generally speaking copper or bronze
1: so I went to the uh, website for the the uh, Civil War Token Society to to get an idea of mm-hmm. what we were talking about here, and I saw some of them uh, would have stamped on them the words one cent indicating the value, and then mm-hmm. above that, in smaller letters, not one cent, so that they would not be accused of counterfeiting That's uh, uh, pennies. That's correct. That, The the lawyer in me says, well, that's clever, but I I can't imagine that would actually work. Uh, Not one cent is actually worth one cent in the the open market.
3: That's right. And in many cases, um, some die sinkers and some patrons were so scared of what the government might do that they simply stamped no denomination on them whatsoever. And so it might have two patriotic themes on either side with the assumption that this is one cent, but because it doesn't flat out say one cent, Clearly, it's not. And even after legislation in 1864 forbidding the issuing of these, many die sinkers antedated theirs as 1861, 1862, 1863, all the way past the American Civil War to try to pawn off the last of their, their metal and try to make some money off of this business.
1: Well, it, it, I, when I was a boy growing up, scalping tickets for baseball games was illegal but you would see people outside uh tiger stadium in the 1968 world series they'd sell a pencil for twenty dollars and you get a bonus ticket if you buy the pencil uh in a day when a ticket cost uh you know a dollar so uh, now in the age of StubHub, that's no longer illegal but the the ways people try to get around these laws uh if the market's there, people will find a way to do it. And obviously these, these tokens represent the way that people were doing this. So did, did these exist in the South as well as the North?
3: Interestingly, uh, this is a question that the society has come, come to quite often. And the answer is really no, We, we don't see them as frequently in the South. Um, Almost all civil war tokens were limited to the northern states. Um, There's a few states, Alabama, Idaho, Kansas, Maine, New Hampshire, and Louisiana, that were known to only have one issuing merchant. Um, And then the border states of Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri, Maryland, just had a few each. And with northern states, Ohio and uh, New York having the vast majority, um, it, it's really hard to find uh, evidence of these being used in the South. Um, the earliest issues were sympathetic to the South. Uh, one of the most famous being the um, no submission to the North, which featured a palmetto tree, bales of cotton, tobacco, and cannons. Um, and those were sent to the South, but they were more of a, um, most of the orders that went to the South were more for collectors, more for advertising purposes, for morale, um, I don't see too much evidence of them actually circulating
1: hmm. Let me ask about the the idea of collecting these you You suggested earlier that they're they' are available in a range for for various budgets. If somebody wanted to get started collecting uh, where would you go where do, do you can you look on eBay and find these?
3: Yes, absolutely um. What we're finding, though, as an organization is, like with anything, um, Civil War tokens are being counterfeited, unfortunately. And um, copies from Eastern Europe and China are emerging on eBay, and they are being sold for reasonable amounts of money. So unless you know a particular dealer, I would avoid eBay. The best bet for somebody who's interested in acquiring a piece would be if they do go to ebay to find a dealer who is a member of the american numismatic association and the civil war token society and that holds them to a standard of selling legitimate examples we keep an eye on these things and anybody that's selling pieces that are forged or are tooled or fixed up in any way without mention of it prior to sale are no longer part of the organization, and you can simply ask. And if you know if somebody's not willing to tell you that information, it's probably not worth purchasing.
1: Well, that's that's always something to be aware of online and, and any endeavor is checking first the uh, the idea of buying something sight unseen from a dealer. Certainly, uh, twenty thirty years ago, twenty years ago, when this was first becoming a practice when I was working at a, a museum, the thought of, of, of just buying something sight unseen was, was unthinkable, but after a while, it became clear that you could actually get things you could not have gotten otherwise, but the risk was always there, and it, you had, you're much better off if you know who you're buying from or if there's some connection there. Now, who is the Civil War Token Society?
3: The Civil War Token Society is a group of collectors from all over the country and technically all over the world because I'm in Canada. Um, founded in 1967, we release a quarterly journal that seems to win quite a few awards uh, on the national circuit for scholarship and research quality. Um, and it's it's just a great group of people that get together and contribute research, contribute findings, share stories about interesting finds. Uh, we host a, each quarterly journal has a mail bid auction, which is far more affordable than anything you can find online. And so by being a member, you can participate in an auction that takes, you know, gets rid of all the eBay and online PayPal fees. And you're only going to compete with an audience of like-minded collectors. So you don't have to worry about the speculators, which have unfortunately raised the prices of quite a few civil war tokens in recent years. So that would be uh, a great starting point for anybody that's interested in collecting these. It's, it's quite affordable and I think you'll find that the membership is, is really a lot of fun to hang out with uh, online uh, and in person at shows and there are, Really great to respond to email requests, too.
1: I came across a reference to something called the the World's Fair of Money. Uh, that That is an a meeting of uh, groups like the Civil War Token Society?
3: Yeah, so that's hosted by the American Numismatic Association, and it's one of the largest coin shows in the world. And so we will meet at that meeting just about every year and hold our annual uh, meeting, go over the minutes, go over uh, finances, things like that award the uh, awards for um, articles in the journal things like that
1: well, it, I, I'm just fascinated by the whole concept first the the existence of the tokens and also the organizational framework that uh, I have my own obscure hobbies some of them history related I'm sure many listeners have others of their own and it's always interesting to, to hear about these and and Think of some of the parallels with other things, uh, other ways to study and and experience vicariously uh, history in in the raw. We're going to take another short break. We're going to come back more, talk more about Civil War tokens, what they were and how to collect them with our guest Scott Hopkins. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com If you think you've seen online TV
4: before, let us surprise you.
0: That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Scott Hopkins, a member of the Board of Governors of the Civil War Token Society. We've been talking about Civil War-era tokens, or coins, produced privately to make up for the lack of government-issue coins during the war. People still needed to spend money in small denominations, and these tokens uh, filled that gap in the economy, at least uh, for a while. They eventually became illegal, as we learned but uh, they were still out there. The Civil War Token Society that we were discussing just at the end of our last segment has a website, uh, cwtsociety.com. That's all one word, C-W-T Society. Scott, I was just looking on it and uh, looking at some of the Abraham Lincoln patriotics, some of these small coins with images of Lincoln and slogans on them since Dovetailing with my own interest in in a particular facet of the Civil War, and they're they're quite interesting. Some of them clearly are political in nature. A beardless image of Lincoln from 1860, uh, urging people to elect Lincoln of Illinois. Another one that says "Good for another heat," presumably dating to the uh, re-election 1864. What what images do you find most compelling uh, among the tokens that you've collected?
3: Well, those are definitely a shared favorite of mine uh, because they're so pricey. Uh, they're hard to get your hands on. And ah. I have one in my collection, uh, and I had to settle for one that was totally bent and scratched. But I absolutely love it just for the imagery alone. Um, some of the most famous and some of the most desired are those that are issued by quirky or strange merchants. Um, Some feature a dentist with a tooth being pulled. Um, Some for a coffin maker. Um, Mm. Some collectors enjoy collecting pieces that feature beer mugs on them for bars and public houses. Um, One of the most famous and most appreciated is the, uh, there's a pretty little one with a monitor on it with stars in the sky and smoke coming from its uh, rear. That's just a really pretty pretty piece. Uh, I generally collect pieces from my home state of Ohio, and most collectors seem to gravitate towards a regional collecting interest, whether it's a local or state level.
1: I cannot resist uh, asking a question that, that if, if you were to ask me when I worked in a museum, I would find Uh, I would give you a lecture on on why we don't answer questions like that in the museum. Uh, It's a question about value, about how much these are worth. Uh, Museums, Mm -hmm. of course, don't want to tell the public how much things are worth because the insurance company doesn't like that, and thieves do like that. (laughs) Uh, But since we haven't given your address, hopefully nobody will will come after your collection. Uh, But can we talk in in ballpark numbers?
3: We're we're all set. (laughs)
1: That, that's good to hear. Just in a ballpark number, though, what what are we talking about in terms of the, the rarest or the most common
3: ones? Sure. So um, if if you have no interest in preservation of quality and you don't mind having a beat up piece, uh, 10 or $20 can get you the vast majority of designs and can give you a representative collection um, because there are so many thousand that are so rare that only one or two are known to exist. One can never complete the collection. And so as you get closer to that uh, higher rarity, we use an R scale, R1 being greater than 5,000 known to exist, all the way down to R10, meaning likely only one exists. Uh, wow. Anything anything over R5 gets pretty difficult. Um, some pieces that are at R9 and R10 and are uncirculated condition, can go for thousands, tens of thousands, and in some cases even more than that, wow, so uh,
1: check your change drawers, everybody, in case you have a civil war token uh, mixed in there. I think everybody would know if they did already. the I, so. I, find it, I find that interesting because again, every uh, collecting element has ways to measure itself um, within uh, with for example, photographs of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, for years, we we're, were categorized by the Ostendorf number, the own number. If you get the the side view of Lincoln photograph from November 63, that that we see on the Lincoln penny, that's that's Ostendorf number 80. So that collectors or scholars could just refer to a number and you know which picture we're talking about. There's a fixed number of photographs. Uh, are are fold numbers? Do I have that correct? Is that a similar thing for uh, for for token collectors?
3: Yes, that's, that's where the R scale comes from. R just short for rarity. George and Mm -hmm. Melvin Fold came up with that scale and it's used in quite a few other, um, facets of token and coin collecting as well, uh, to describe rarity. But in some cases it's, uh, being replaced by a universal rarity system introduced by, uh, Q David Bowers that advocates for, um, almost like a decimal movement placement for the increased or decreased rarity where it's a power of 10 hmm. just for simplicity's sake and calculating because the, the one we have now, although it's useful, um, it's not very handy if you wanted to try to calculate the, the difference between an R5 from an R6, for example. So the relationship between
1: adjacent numbers isn't steady all the way through. No, it's so, not. So, um, who who does this kind of collecting I'm, I'm curious about this because we corresponded a little bit before the show um, and and based on your your comment about avoiding uh, technology when going to visit relatives when for me that meant I guess not talking on the, the, the landline phone uh, which wasn't an option so I'm, I'm guessing you're younger than I am by a fair amount, a lot of hobbies, uh, uh, stamp collecting, model railroads, uh, uh, within them they talk about how the hobby is graying, uh, everybody is over 50, and we're not getting younger members. And is the same thing happening with, with coin or token collecting? And, and And where do you fit into that?
3: Well, to answer your question, I fit into the millennial age category, and my technology was the Game Boy ah. and the <laughs> CD player. Um, nice. But to answer the second part, yes and no. We we do notice, we do take um, notice that when you go to a typical convention, it's hard to find somebody under 40. Um, it's hard to find somebody other than balding white males typically – um, but we're making quite a few inroads with that. And there are quite a few young people interested in coins. Uh, they just go in different ways. Um, while all the older collectors generally gravitate towards that site scene purchase, you know, in person at a convention, uh, quite a few younger collectors will anonymously and quietly buy pieces on eBay and share them on Facebook with their friends or have image contests on, you know, the beauty that they can produce on putting it on Instagram. Um, It's just a smaller audience and a different audience. Um, A lot of people are worried about the the decline of coin collecting and token collecting. But I, I try to remind collectors that it's existed since ancient times And it's made it through the dark ages and plague and world wars and Great Depressions. And it's had its ups and downs. And I think it will continue to grow, especially with the middle class rising in China and India. We've already seen quite a huge increase in the interest in specialty rare coins in both of those countries. So I think it will grow. It's just going to be different.
1: Would you say most of the people who collect these tokens are collectors first and Civil War tokens is a sort of a side, is just one branch of their interest? Or do you find people who are interested in the Civil War and, as you say, they, they decide they don't want to be reenactors, they don't want to go to graduate school for one reason or another, but here's something they can collect uh and, and and so this is this is the only coin they collect because because it's part of the Civil War world. Where where do most collectors fall on that scale between collecting and, and Civil War interest?
3: I would say the vast majority are coin collectors first, and they probably entered a similar circumstance as me, where um, the typical federal issue coins either got boring over time because. Usually you collect one image design and it just changes by year by year and mint mark by mint mark. Or they couldn't simply afford the more popular U.S. federal coins, which, like I said, they can be produced in the millions, yet they sell for 10 times the price of something where only 100 were produced. Um, That's the vast majority of collectors. Uh, There's a small number that are armchair generals that just absolutely love the Civil War, and this is their closest, easiest way, besides maybe collecting um, spent shell casings and bullets and things like that. Um, This is an affordable way to hold something that really captures the past. Um, And then there's a very small minority that are strictly in it for the investment. Um, These have appreciated well over the years, and quality tokens seem to increase in price throughout the years, so they've paid off well for those who've who've put into them. That, uh,
1: again, seems to happen to every interesting thing. It was Malcolm Forbes, famously back in the 1980s, who decided he would start collecting Abraham Lincoln manuscripts, and suddenly the value of of those manuscripts began to escalate dramatically, because he just bought everything out. Uh, And and while it it did create a, a single great collection at one time, it also of a lot of people out of the market of, of buying them. Is there, is there a place people could go to see these? Are there museums that have good collections? Uh, where, where could someone view this sort of thing? Or Are there great private collectors who are famous for how many tokens they have?
3: Um, I would say some of the places you could go are I would check local history uh, societies because quite a few of them would have these on display and not really understand uh the numismatic value and not display it in such a way to bring attention to you know this is a token we have this is a coin and this is its context within the history Uh, i've run into that a couple of times where in my hometown area where i grew up grew up in uh, toledo ohio where i would find these pieces at historical societies or museums then they were you know well off in in the back corner somewhere so that would be my first um Recommendation. Then the other one is actually if you can get your hands on an old auction catalog from Sotheby's from stacks, from Bowers from heritage, those are usually the big names in coins and old auction catalogs are incredibly affordable on eBay and they offer a wonderful opportunity to see some breathtaking photos of some of the rarest and most beautiful designs, not only in civil war tokens, but coins in general. Um, those are absolutely stunning. To find a collector who would be willing to share um, images, it would be tough. Um, the link you shared on the Facebook page, uh, cwtoken.com, that's, that's a great site for just beautiful images. But to actually see them in person would, would take uh, some mentorship and some um, connections with, with someone within the organization, I think, or within numismatics in general.
1: Just a minute left. Our listeners uh, are always writing to me saying, we need more book recommendations. We have all this extra money to spend on books and we don't get enough from you. Um, So I I see a reference to a book called A Guidebook of Civil War Tokens by Q. David Bowers. Is that uh, the the one that the society produces? Is, Is that recommended?
3: That is recommended. It is not the one the society produces. That's by Whitman okay. Publishing, which okay. should allow any reader to find it at um, your your average Barnes and Noble or something of that nature. Um, should be on Amazon. Uh, the organization produces two two books: one for store cards and one for patriotics. And then a private collector by the name of Richard Irons has just produced a new on the sutler tokens, and so those are available on the Civil War Token Society website, and then members get a, a slight discount as well.
1: Well, another good reason to check out that website to see what's there to uh, consider joining it if you want to learn more about Civil War tokens. I will say it's it's fairly rare that. Uh, someone proposes a show idea for something i have not the vaguest idea about before it starts and i end up feeling like hey i learned something tonight and i certainly feel that way i hope uh, listeners that you feel the same way uh, so thank you scott hopkins for educating us about civil war tokens
3: thank you jerry it's been a pleasure
1: and listeners as always thank you for listening to civil war talk
0: radio